Hello, is this thing on? Do you think they can hear us? Nah, let's say it again. Hi, and welcome to the Gritty Nurse Podcast, an unfiltered discussion related to health and healthcare. My name is Amy. And my name is Sarah. And we are your podcast hosts. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, iHeartRadio, Amazon, or any other podcast listening platform, don't forget to subscribe so you can get updates to when we have our latest episodes. Also, don't forget to rate and review us. And if you like what you're hearing and you love our advocacy work, don't forget to go to www.grittynurse.com and click on the donate button. As little as $1 or $2 a month for a total of $12 a year will help us with our monthly podcast costs such as website hosting, our hosting platform, audio equipment, and the time and energy it takes us to put out good quality episodes. We thank you and we appreciate you. Hi and welcome everyone. I am so excited for the guest that we have today. This is I think this has been a long time in the works, right, Sarah? So finally, we have this wonderful guest. I mean, I've I've looked up to her for a long time. She's mentored me. I've learned so much from her. Sarah, please take it away and introduce our guest today. We have been talking about having this guest for a long time. And I have to say, she's another one of those people that is a jack of all trades. Dr. Suru Sharda is an anesthesiologist and an assistant clinical professor at McMaster University. She is the former obstetrical anesthesia lead at the Oakville Trafalgar Memorial Hospital and holds a master's and fellowship in medical education. She is an expert in interdisciplinary simulation and debriefing, as well as an accomplished writer, journal publisher, trained narrative writing coach, and narrative medicine facilitator. She is also the CPSO lead for equity, diversity, and inclusion. Welcome, Dr. Sarusharda. We're so glad to have you today. So, Saru, I just wanted to quickly dive in and just get started. Um, we wanted to know how you got started with narrative medicine and what drives you or inspires you to encourage others to write. It's actually interesting how I ended up uh, as a narrative medicine facilitator and a creative writing coach. I've always been drawn to writing. Ever since I was a very young child, I remember just kind of picking up scraps of paper and writing little stories on them. And and I would be very sort of free in sharing them with anybody who would want to listen. So I'd like go tell these stories to my family and, you know, um, and so I, I think writing was always for me, uh, not just a, a form of self-expression, but I think a form of, of self-care and wellness. I don't think I necessarily realized that until I was older, but during medical school and residency, I think my writing really fell away. I think I just got so busy with, um, you know, being a medical student, being a resident, being in the kind of day-to-day busyness of all of that. I really didn't write for quite a few years. And it was interesting that when I came back to my writing, after I finished residency, it was sort of like coming back to to something that felt like home and felt so grounding. Um, and I found a company called Firefly Creative Writing. I started taking multiple courses with them, went on multiple retreats, really actually started writing a lot about my journey as a woman in medicine and as a woman of color in medicine. And after having worked with them for a few years, um, their founder, Chris, said to me, 
you know, I, I think you'd be a really great coach. I think you're really good at giving feedback. You, you really get to the essence of, of why people are writing and what they're writing. Do you want to join the team? And so I got trained uh, in doing that, started facilitating um, specific writing workshops for healthcare professionals as well as other types of writing workshops, and then got connected with the narrative medicine community at McMaster, um, particularly a woman named Joyce Zazaluk, who does a lot of narrative medicine stuff there, and very quickly realized that there were all of these parallels between what I was doing with Firefly Creative Writing and what was published in the narrative medicine literature. And it sort of felt like I found this amazing intersection of all of these things that I loved, you know, writing and creating and medicine and teaching and facilitating and community. I think that was the other big piece of it, finding a community of folks who also believed in the healing power and the transformative power of the written word. And it's just grown Mm -hmm. from there, really. Yeah, I mean, I remember you taking... um me through an exercise. It was actually, I'm trying to remember the name of the conference that we both attended. You had taken, uh, it was actually on diversity, equity, inclusion, Mm -hmm. and you took uh, myself and other participants through a creative uh, writing exercise. And I actually didn't really know what to expect, if you want me to be honest, because I've actually never really heard very much about narrative medicine myself. And I was actually really nervous because because I was like, I don't know how this is going to turn out. And I just and, you know, you 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 led us through this process. And and I actually felt quite empowered after I wrote what I did. And I didn't even think about like, I mean, you asked the questions and you gave us the time frame to 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 kind of really think about what some of these concepts or thoughts meant to us in relation to our work um, in diversity, equity, and inclusion. I was really taken aback by how powerful I felt after that exercise. And I've actually been just, I mean, just on my own, you know, throughout the day, maybe there's a little note or something that kind of has come to my mind. And I'll just now jot it down because I feel that that even just that one period of time that you took us through that exercise, it really actually impacted me. So I, I really hope that other people can hear a little bit more about narrative medicine. And maybe even maybe they reach out to you or some or something at some point. But I think that this is actually something that I think even just during this pandemic, not just other healthcare professionals will need, but other women will need as well. Yeah, absolutely, Amy. And I think that what has drawn me to facilitating these kind of spaces is exactly that. It's seeing how we can take what seems to feel like a very chaotic, formless experience. And, you know, that might be a chaotic, formless experience that we have as a woman. It might be a chaotic, formless experience that we have as a healthcare professional, particularly during COVID. It might be something you know, distressing that happens to us or or not even distressing something joyful. You know, I think we can write into joy as much as we can mm-hmm. write into stress um, that happens to us that we wouldn't otherwise be able to bring attention to. And that's what writing a, into that experience allows us to do. Um, and narrative medicine talks about these three sort of uh, phases, if you like, or stages. Um, and the first is to bring attention to that experience. So lots of things happen to us as clinicians, as people, as you know, parents. Some of us are parents. Um, we all are three here today. Um, and unless we actually have not just time, but a facilitated space in which we can actually bring attention to that thing, it doesn't ever then actually get represented. And if it doesn't ever get represented, we can't actually then 
act on it to move forward to transform in some way. So whether we're transforming as clinicians, whether we're transforming as people, whether we're transforming as parents, as spouses, as friends, whatever it may be, that actual sensory motor act of taking that experience and putting words to it, particularly actually when you're using pen and paper, there's actually some neuroscience between that motor action of actually writing it down with a with a pen on a piece of paper, um, it could it really just goes by in some ways unprocessed. So while narrative medicine and creative writing and the type of creative writing and narrative medicine that I teach are not therapy, like I'm not a therapist, there right. is something therapeutic to that experience, particularly when you come together in a community and you share in a safe space that is facilitated where then, as you said, Amy, you can go into it feeling kind of nervous and, and maybe a little uncomfortable and leave it actually feeling very empowered and with a new skill set. Mm-hmm. No, I agree. I thought that was, it was, it did feel like therapy. I know, like you said, you're, that it that you're not a therapist, but it did feel like therapy. It felt like, you know, I had the opportunity, whether it was, you know, because yes, we podcast, we talk a lot, but sometimes you get to really express your feelings in a different way when when you're when you're going about it from a narrative sense. So it you may not be a therapist, but I can tell you, I think not only did you feed me therapy, but you fed many others souls therapy that day as well. Oh, thanks, Amy. That I, and that's why I do it. I, I love hearing that. And that's why I participate in it as well as a, you know, I've been lucky to have some amazing facilitators, but just to pick up on what you said there, there is a lot of literature now in this realm showing that practitioners, healthcare practitioners who practice with narrative competence. So folks who go and learn these narrative frameworks and these narrative methods, um, not only do their patients actually have better outcomes, and there's actually literature showing some pretty tangible outcomes. So, you know, better HbA1cs for diabetic patients. Um, Yeah, better COPD control for patients with COPD. And that's really where narrative medicine first came into being. It was all about how do we attend better to the stories of our patients, right? Because narrative medicine Mm -hmm. is all about how do we be, how do we become better story receivers? Um, But what the research has shown over the last 20 to 25 years or so in this area is that not only do patients benefit, but we now know that healthcare workers benefit too. We actually feel more well. We actually feel more connected. We actually feel more joyful in our work when we're able to engage in this kind of um, writing and sharing. And so it's really become I think a practice that we are now recognizing uh, to be helpful in terms of things like burnout. And I did facilitate some workshops specifically during COVID when obviously we were all under an immense amount of pressure um, just again to, Mm -hmm. to really hone in on that idea um, of being able to share stories. Cause I think that sometimes we're so busy in our clinical work that we just don't get the opportunity to do that. And it's Mm -hmm. so very healing. Yeah, absolutely. So I'd, we're going to switch gears just a little bit here, but you know, you are a writer, you're a scholar, you're an anesthesiologist, you're a published journal writer, an expert in interdisciplinary simulation, faculty at McMaster, and now you also have another role with the College of Surgeons and Physicians of Ontario. Could you tell our listeners a little bit about that? Yeah, so originally I joined the College of um physicians and surgeons of Ontario, the CPSO, about a year and a half ago as a medical advisor. So I was actually, um, I applied for a role where I would be giving 
sort of a clinical lens to things that come through the college, which are typically kind of uh, things to do either with complaints or to do with um, quality of care, quality improvement, um, you know, that kind of thing. And I very quickly realized um, during my time there that we weren't necessarily bringing an equity lens to all of our processes at the college, but there was a real desire to do so. So there had been some work that had mm-hmm. happened already in in trying to do that, but it had sort of not really had um, one central person coordinating that, um, you know, particularly somebody with lived experience and some scholarly expertise in this area as I have. And so um, I have to say that when I approached our CEO and registrar, Dr. Nancy Whitmore, about really formalizing a role and really formalizing the work, she was extremely um, encouraging and positive of that. And so this is actually a new role that's never existed before. And um, I've been in it since about January. So it's been very interesting, very challenging, very rewarding. We have a long way to go. Uh, But I I do think that we are moving forward and making progress. And I think what's been the most amazing and pleasurable part of this role is really being able to connect with organizations, connect with community. You know, our focus in 2021 has definitely been on anti-Indigenous racism and really to connect with folks doing that work on the ground. As I said, community, elders, um, people who really we are serving as the college. You know, we're serving all patients of Ontario, not just patients um, who can be heard the loudest or who can, you know, who have access to the system, whether that be because of language, whether that be because of socioeconomic privilege, whatever it may be, I think really understanding that we are now making a concerted effort to reach out to folks who maybe haven't had the opportunity before to interact with us in the way that they would have liked to and really to listen. So I do, I've been doing a lot of listening and a lot of learning. I still have a lot more listening and learning to do, but it's been really eye-opening and, um, That is so inspiring, Sue. I think Amy and I, you know, with the podcast, we're all about equity, diversity and inclusion. We kind of weave this into as many um, episodes as we can. And I think that it's just a journey that we all need to go on. And I'm assuming that this isn't your first foray into um, equity in medicine. I was just wondering if you could talk to us um, a bit about that journey. Um, Has it been difficult getting into these initiatives with um, equity in medicine? Have there been any highlights that you want to share with us? Yeah, I mean, I think you and Amy know this well, Sarah. You know, I I know you both and I've been following your work uh, with the podcast particularly that this is really, I think, a conversation that was not happening even definitely not 10 years ago the way it's happening now, maybe not even five years ago. And I think the three of us are probably Mm -hmm. in a similar place in our career. You know, we're sort of mid-career and, you know, we've been – uh, in our particular positions now for, for a decade or so. You know, I've been a physician for 21 years and an anesthesiologist for 10. So I would say that it's in some ways it feels like, you know, a friend of mine uh, who's a who's a physician and uh, does a lot of advocacy work, Rithika Goel, says, talks about it as a tipping point. We're sort of at this tipping point now that feels really exciting and feels like finally we can talk about this. And I think that you know, I don't want to speak for you, but having followed your work and, and listened to your to you both speak, 
um, this is not new for us, right? Like we, we've known about this for a We've lived this. So in some ways that's a bit frustrating because it's sort of like, well, I've been talking about this since the day I stepped foot into medical school. So, right. so, for, so in that way, I think, as I said, sometimes it feels a little bit frustrating because it's like, oh, everybody's just getting kind of woke to this now. I mean, really, like this is my life. Um, mm-hmm. Having said that, you know, right. as you said, Sarah, we're all learning. You know, there's a lot of things I didn't know about inequities uh, in Indigenous health. There's a lot of things I didn't know about experiences of black folks there's a lot of things I didn't know about the experience of trans folks so you know as much as I've had my experiences and my lived experiences um in this in this realm I think I'm still very much on a learning journey and I'm just very grateful that people have been gracious enough to allow me to make mistakes and allow me to kind of you know fall and get up again and so I'm very much trying to approach it in that way too in the work that I'm doing Um, but yeah it's not easy work I think you both can attest to that I just feel grateful that there are forums like this now that you've created where we can really speak about this and dig into it in a different way and we don't have to shy away from speaking about it anymore we don't have to shy away from writing about it anymore we don't have to shy away from going to our organizations and saying hey we need to take this seriously what's the plan um so yeah I think there's a lot of positive of course there are frustrations um I think when you've been thinking about this all the time and you've been living it for your whole career you can sometimes get impatient about the pace of change. Um, But I think the important thing is to remember that change is happening. Yeah. No, I I agree with you. And I think, I think this journey and this work to ensuring equity, it can't just fall on the backs of people like you or myself, right? I think we talk about um, allyship. We talk about, you know, like you said, you reached out to the, the, the president of the CPSO. And I think that having that, I don't I hate the word buy-in, but I think having that allyship from the top words down really helps start to frame some of the ideas and some of the changes we might need to see to really ensure that there is equity in medicine and in healthcare. And I think one of the things that I always feel, I guess, cognizant and conscious about is that yes, um, I feel like I've been saying this for a long time, but is the space still safe? Is it mm-hmm. still an open discourse? Knowing that, you know, I mm-hmm. have received pushback as well as Sarah has received pushback from other members that are within the healthcare community. And like, even like you said, you know, there's this whole um, perception of woke medicine where there are some people that are quite actually antagonistic towards it as well. And I think that's something that we do have to contend with. We do have to address. And I'm going to just kind of ask you, how do you think, how how would you propose us dealing with, you know, this new idea? Because I feel that we're going to have, we're going to see more pushback because as much as we continue to have these courageous conversations, I'm going to, I'm going to call them that we are going to be in the face where there will be a lot of pushback. What would you say to those who might say that, you know, this is just woke medicine. There, there aren't these challenges that we say that they are in medicine. Yeah, it's such a good question, Amy. And I, I feel like it's a question I grapple with on a daily basis um, in my EDI work, in my clinical work, in my teaching. And I would say that really, in order to actually have organizational and systemic transformation, the people who lead have to be willing to share their power. 
So it's not until yeah, it's not until f- folks like yourself and Sarah are actually in those positions of power, which are now currently, let's be frank, not right. held by people who look like us, that right. we are actually going to see real change. So I'm not saying that there are not allies in those positions. I think they there are. And I think that people are becoming, as you said, Amy, much more cognizant that this is just not something that you can ignore anymore. You know, you have to actively be anti-racist. You have to actively ask your organization, what are you doing about this? I think where the gap is, though, that I have experienced, um, and I'm not talking about any specific organization, I'm just sort of talking generally in this work that I've done over the years, is that folks want to have the conversation and they want to have people like us maybe leading that conversation. But the difficulty comes when you then ask people to change their power structure. And you actually then ask people to say, but what is the action that is going to flow from this intention, because that action is usually pretty hard uh, for an organization. It usually Mm -hmm. requires them not only to change their power structure, but to give resource, whether that's money, whether that's time, whether that's whatever it is. And it requires them to change the status quo. And it sometimes requires them to make other people unhappy. Right. And I think that we're not quite there yet in terms of moving from that intention to that very concrete systemic action that is going to drive systemic organizational transformation. And I think that what I'm really hopeful about is seeing folks like yourselves in these kind of spaces, seeing folks like Elie Calafontaine, who's now the president-elect of the CMA, seeing that we have the Indigenous Consortium for Medical Education get funding from the federal government. Because I I think until we have that kind of self-governance, we're not going to see the kind of real change that needs to happen for us to actually actually live and work in a very different kind of system. I think we're quite a ways away from that yet. I think organizations need to demonstrate their uh, commitment to equity, diversity, and inclusion all the time. So it can't just be, for example, February for Black History Month. You know, it's done. It's March. We're going to move on to some other theme. It has to be something that is ongoing. And Amy and I are very aware of this, that organizations will check a box and then you know February's done we're going to move on now to this other thing but it's so much more than that and we really need to keep having these conversations and raising awareness because if we don't do it then I feel like we are the best people to be having these conversations so we need to keep doing it and get other people involved um, and just really support each other in the best way that we can and another thing is I just feel like when people don't understand racism and they expect us as women of color to be educating them, it's like sometimes to come to the conversation, you need to do your own learning and your own research and not expect somebody that's Asian or somebody that's Black to educate you about the whole movement behind Black Lives Matters or anti-Asian racism. It's like this can actually be somewhat traumatizing because of you know, the experiences that we may have had. So it's just about opening that conversation and making safe and brave spaces for those things to happen. 
Yeah, I just want to say something about both of those points, Sarah, because I think they're both really important. And to your first point in terms of, oh, you know, we've had our February Awareness Month, we're moving on. Uh, You know, I'm lucky that actually uh, in my role at the CPSO, I I have had a lot of support and I have had a lot of tangible resource, which has been really important in moving the work forward. So, you know, I, I, I am very grateful for that. But you know, I think part of that whole conversation as well for any organization is asking who are you accountable to, Mm. right? Like you're not accountable to the organization in this work or to the board. You're accountable to the people that you have a mandate to serve. So how do you know that if you're doing a good job, it's not the board that's going to tell you you're doing a good job. You actually have to go and ask the folks who you're actually trying to serve. You know, what is it that we need to do Mm -hmm. to actually get this right? And that doesn't mean going to them with a blank slate, as you say, like, you know, I'm not going to go there having not done my own work. You know, you have to go to them having understood um, to a degree what that history is, what their experiences of oppression have been, what their experiences of lack of access to the system have been, and yet you still have to co-create with them. And I I think that can be challenging because you don't want to go with a blank slate, um, but at the same time, you don't want to make assumptions. So that, not that you asked me this question, but that's one of the challenges that I have been having in this work and just sort of where does that balance lie? And I think what I'm finding is that it's okay if you don't always get that right, as long as you're building relationships and as long as you're going in there with the intent uh, that, mm-hmm. yeah, this work is for you. Like, right. I want to be accountable to you. So tell me how I'd be accountable. Tell me if I made a mistake. Tell me if we're not getting it right. Um, and that can be tricky. That can be tricky within the mandate of an organization. I completely agree with you that the burden cannot be completely placed on us. But at the same time, we also have to be involved or the communities we're trying to serve have to be involved from a very early stage in any of this kind of work that we're embarking upon. I swear you're reading my mind because you're going right down the direction in which I'm actually going to go. So in terms of just talking about, you know, that people need to be involved early and often. I mean, we're having these conversations now. Like I am 10 years out in my career. You're you're 21 years out in your career. Sarah's over 10 years out. And one of the things that I always thought about is, you know, when we talk about health advocacy and professionalism, these two terms seem not to be synonymous. But I, I firmly believe that not just in your in medicine role, so like in the can meds, but also in nursing competencies, that health advocacy and talking about anti-racism anti-racism and anti-racist policies are something that we need to learn right from the get-go. So one of the things that I did today, of course, because, you know, um, myself and Sarah are sleuthy and we like do our little background homework. (laughs) So in your um, Canadian Medical Association Journal article, uh, Not Neutral, Re-Imaging Anti-Racism as a Professional Competency, you and your co-authors discuss the notion of professionalism and advocacy. So I'm going to quickly read the last paragraph. It's a little bit lengthy, but um, bear with me, listeners. Okay, so universalizing and normalizing a racial, a racial justice approach to healthcare will foster better patient care. Professionalism itself must include advocacy. Although medical professionals may not agree with each other or their institutions, we are united in our obligations to the, to the public good. As such, physicians must be supported in breaking free from narrow notions of professional behavior to engage with the work of racial justice. We cannot be neutral when the stakes are as high as the health and well-being of our patients. 
this is a huge paradigm shift in thinking for medical and nursing education. So what do you, I think we kind of touched on this, but what do you say to those who think our work in advocacy is not professional or maybe the way we come off is not professional? Yeah, this is again, a really tricky one, um, Amy. And I think that's really what the impetus was behind writing that piece, which interestingly had got a lot of traction, a lot of uh, hits, like the Almetric score was <laughs> high and we had lots of people reaching out. So clearly it struck a chord and it wasn't just kind of people of color who were reaching out. You know, I had the Royal College of Physicians and Surgeons of Canada reach out and folks who are educators in other medical schools and, and other faculties, um, including nursing faculties actually reach out as well, um, not just in Canada, but abroad as abroad too. And I think that people are inherently beginning to understand. We talked earlier about that sort of tipping point and that cultural mm -hmm. moment that we're in now. Um, people are sort of inherently beginning to understand, I think, that this cannot be ignored any longer, that we really have to grapple with this and that we have to grapple with it early. Um, you know, I think that medical schools are starting to do a better job. Certainly, I think, you know, you alluded to this. We didn't get this kind of education no, in medical not. school or nursing school. It just wasn't talked about. And I think what helps um, is that, you know, there are a lot of scholars who've done a lot of great work showing that if we don't have an anti-racist approach or an anti-homophobic approach or an anti-discriminatory approach, people are actually mm -hmm. harmed. Mm -hmm. Patients actually come to tangible harm. So, you know, sometimes as healthcare professionals, you know, we want the kind of hard data of like, well, why is this important? And, you know, personally, I, as a qualitative researcher, I don't think that I necessarily need that, but there is that data out there, right? We have data showing that patients who are subject to microaggressions chronically over time actually have poorer cardiovascular health. Mm -hmm. They have more mental health issues. Like this is like, we're talking about concrete harm here. You know, when I listen to folks like Lisa Richardson speak about anti-Indigenous racism, again, the biggest contributor to what we see in some indigenous communities in terms of mental health issues, in terms of substance issues, mm -hmm. is colonization. Mm -hmm. The root cause of those poor healthcare outcomes is colonization. You have your land stripped from you, you have your culture stripped from you, and that means you're not well. And so right. I think that, you know, sometimes we have to bring people back to that very concrete outcome. Um, and say, well, it's important because it makes people sick. <laughs> and, yeah. you know, being able to, I think, draw on some of that data, which we didn't necessarily have 10 or 20 years ago, we had, we had data because we had people's lived experiences, which is really important data. Again, as a qualitative researcher, I think that's key data. But I think sometimes in organizations, we need to present the other stuff as well and remind people that actually this is a really important um contributor in terms of health and well-being and the other thing that we pointed out in our article was that of course advocacy is one of the pillars in the CanMeds framework you alluded to yes. that Amy and so you don't get to pick and choose what kind of advocacy you're going to allow physicians or nurses or healthcare professionals to be engaged in uh, right. all of it is important and I think that it's a tricky balance often when you're in an organization 
how much do I speak out? How much do I not speak out? And again, I think that as faculty and as folks who are a bit further along in our careers, we also have an obligation to our students and to our junior peers to be that voice and to say, you know, maybe I'm at a point now where I can speak out or I'm willing to take that risk because the risk is different now for me than it maybe was 15 years ago. No, I agree. And it, and it almost circles back to your point on power and how power structure should be shared. And it's kind of funny. I actually just reread over um, Ibram X. Kendi's chapter on power and how to be an anti-racist. And I, I think some people feel that they don't have power. We may not have, as a minority or as a racialized woman, I may not have absolute power, but I have some power to make change. I have I have a platform in which I can share stories where I can help, you know, enlighten others or talk about issues of concern or, you know, to push political agendas that are anti-racist. So I, I, I want people who might be listening, who feel, you know, that they don't have power, that they do have, even if it's not absolute power, they have the power to make change and to be able to start some of these really, really difficult and courageous types of conversations. And and I think that it's going to happen more and more. Like, I feel that, like you said, we, we've we've hit this point where it's just we, we we can't take it anymore. It's just one more thing that we might see and we're just like, we can't, we're done. And I know a lot of people say, oh, you know, it, George Floyd uh, was the tipping point. But I think that was just the, that's just like the top of the iceberg. There's so much more that was well below that surface that was already occurring that was not being paid attention to. It's just now that we have better technology to record it. Yeah. And I was going to say too, um, you know, that idea that I don't have power or that I can't start a conversation, I think can, can feel very real and can be very real, mm-hmm. um, which is why I think community that I talked about earlier is such a key piece of this work. You know, I felt, as I'm sure you both have at some point, very emotionally exhausted <laughs> doing yeah. EDI work. Like it's such a passion for me um, and and personal in so many ways, but it's exhausting. And I think that sometimes when you are in that place, and I still feel like I'm in that place in in various contexts and various situations, there's other places where I feel that I can be in my power. And there's other places where I feel I don't have that power. Um, Being able to draw on that community is so important. And I think it's just so amazing that, you know, we three can be here together, a doctor and two nurses basically advocating for the same thing. And I think that this is really in some ways something that has united Mm -hmm. us as healthcare professionals. I think sometimes, you know, we all know about (laughs) the doctor-nurse tension and all the stories and things, you know, but, you know, there's something, I think, unifying, which I think COVID also brought us together in some ways. Um, But certainly when it comes to equity and thinking about um, a more just space in terms of racial equity in terms of other kinds of equity as well where we can all come together and so if I would say for people listening that if you do feel that you don't have that voice you certainly are welcome in community and one of the things I've enjoyed the most in my narrative medicine work is actually facilitating spaces specifically for black indigenous and people of color because every single time I facilitate that kind of a writing space I have very similar feedback, which is, oh, I can say, or I can write, or I can share the things that I can't say or share Mm -hmm. or write in other spaces. And I'll just give you an example of 
what was really, I think, one of the most touching moments for me in the last couple of years facilitating one of those spaces. Um, the Black Medical Student Association uh, at U of T reached out to me to facilitate something for them. And I have to admit, I was kind of nervous. You know, I'm not black. I don't have the same experience of of racism. You know, Amy, obviously you could speak to this, but anti-black racism has very specific historical contexts and historical roots. Um, But, you know, I spoke with some colleagues and obviously I spoke with the students. They said, no, like we really would like you to do this. Um, It was such an inspiring group of students. They just blew me away. And one of them said, I feel so emotional looking at my screen and seeing all of these other black faces. Mm -hmm. She said, I am almost never in a space as a medical student um, where I'm in a space that is all black. Uh, We ended up having medical students, not just from U of T. We ended up having actually medical students from across the country. But like being able to witness that moment of togetherness and being able to feel like a very small part of that was very special and I think underscored to me why these spaces are so needed. I'm just so glad that we're having this conversation. As you were speaking, Saru, I I just thought, you know, the pandemic has been bad in a lot of ways, but really in terms of nurses and physicians, we have more commonalities than differences. Um, And I think that this conversation has really just brought that to light for me. Um, So I think that it's great that we talk about this because so much in my career, I felt like racism was the elephant in the room. I always felt like I was the odd one out. I'm sure Amy felt like that a lot too throughout my career, but I never felt like it was safe to say anything. And now that we're having more of these conversations, I think it's just come to the forefront how we feel and how we see that you know, as you move up in healthcare and in medicine, it's less diverse the more you get to the top. And I think that's something that also is um, on my mind a lot these days is like, how can we make it more equitable at all levels of healthcare? That's a really important question, Sarah. And it's funny, I was actually just chatting with somebody literally yesterday about that exact thing. It was people who were not in medicine and were asking me some questions around gender equity. And they started like, how many women are there in medicine now? Mm-hmm. I said, well, medical school is more than 50% women. But when you go to the top and you look to the leadership positions and you look to, you know, uh, the topmost positions in academic institutions or in hospitals, there's very few women and even yep. fewer women of color. Yeah, I think that representation is huge. It's so important, not just... um as a black female, but just to be able to see myself in other roles or to see other people that look like me in various different types of roles. And like Sarah said, you know, the the further you go up in medicine, the less likely there are people that look like me. And I think that that's another thing that I hope that we'll start seeing some change in as well. It's and, not just in medicine, but it's it's in nursing oh, as well. Absolutely. And I think also, Amy, uh, you know, this is a conversation I've had with many people as well and, and will probably resonate with you and Sarah. It's not just about having diversity at the top. It's again, right, right. are you heard? So right. are you in that boardroom as, you know, oh, great, you know, we have this wonderful black nurse here who's so accomplished but are you actually heard around that table or do you actually feel again that you are silenced even though you're in the boardroom now and and I have that conversation a lot with folks because it is an experience I've had where you're invited to the table Mm -hmm. but then you're not really 
I don't want to say taken seriously, but there's all of these microaggressions that happen. You're talked over or you're, you know, you're not heard in the same way that others are. And I think it's important, again, to think about, you know, how do I support myself in those kind of contexts and what kind of support do I need and not being afraid to ask for it. I think the further and further I've gone in my career, the less and less um, reluctant I have been to to seek out that mentorship. So I would I would say for anybody listening who's earlier on in their career, um, to, to really not be afraid of doing that. You know, we all have mentors at all stages of our careers. And I think having that kind of mentorship, again, which is why representation is so important, as you said, Amy, um, you know, it was me actually listening to a South Asian um, ICU uh, anesthetist when I was a medical student, which made me want to become an anesthesiologist. I'd never considered it as a career before. And I remember just seeing her and she was so eloquent and so smart and so kind and so brilliant that I just thought wow like she looks like me I I want to like I want to do that (laughs) so yeah I think um, I think it's super important yeah I mean I think we are all on this journey together and I'm I'm excited like I'm excited to really see where this where this might go and I think that you know again this is such a huge passion of mine in terms of equity and and understanding fundamentally what that looks like in organizations, in in every facet of what we do, how we live, how we breathe, how we how we go about our days. So you know what? I, I think we're in this together mm-hmm. and I can't wait to see what's next. Yeah. And I just want to pick up on something there, Amy. I know in terms of Sarah, I think alluded to this earlier as well, that one thing I say a lot in my role at the college is that EDI is not a separate thing. Mm-hmm. EDI is not a separate thing that we do. EDI is something that we need to be thinking about in every process, in every policy, in every conversation, at every panel. Um, everything that we do, we need to be bringing that lens and asking those questions and pausing for a second and saying, who does this serve? Who does this not serve? Whose voices are not in the room? How do we get those voices in the room? Who, who is this accessible to? Who is it not accessible to? Because I think unless you're very deliberate about asking those questions they just they just fall away and they don't get asked and they don't get answered because we have the same people around the same tables over and over and over again that is so insightful saru i i just wanted to thank you for coming onto the podcast today we've talked about so many different topics um i just wondered if there's anything that you would like to share that maybe we haven't touched upon or any last words for our listeners I just want to say thanks. It was it's just so lovely speaking with you both and um I know you both to be really excellent clinicians as well as all of this uh, other work that you're doing now and um I feel really proud like being here and and being in this conversation. Um and yeah, I think, you know, the other thing I'll quickly say is that what's really shaped this equity journey for me as well as being on the other side of it. Like my dad was very very sick in an ICU a few years ago and passed away and I also have a brother with a with a developmental disability. And so I think, you know, part of what really drives me to do this work as well is, is remembering that we are all at the receiving end of the healthcare system at yeah. some point, yeah. you know, either ourselves or, or as, or our relatives. Um, and I think just remembering that, like as a healthcare professional, remembering that you may be on the other side of this at some point, routine for you, it's every day for you. You may not think that you're holding any bias, um, you know, that's why often we talk about implicit and unconscious bias, but, you know, just 
just be mindful, take a pause. You know, we're all learning and um, just approach this with humility is I think what I would say for folks who are starting on the journey and who are struggling. Just, you know, how can we approach this with curiosity and humility? And every time I sort of feel myself stuck or feel myself um, kind of digging my heels in about something, I try and take a step back and ask myself that question again. So yeah, thanks so much. Oh, no, thank you. And again, you know, I think there's a opportunity there where maybe they could start writing some ideas down. <laughs> Definitely. I'm always <laughs> encouraging people to write even for five minutes, even for two minutes, two minute timer on your phone and just go for it. Absolutely. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank Saru. you. Thank you for having me. Take care.